0: Today's show is brought to you by sunbum.com. When I was scheduling today's conversation with Rosemary Reimers Rice, she had to do it early in the week because she had a dermatology appointment midweek to have some spots cut out and tested. My parents have had that same procedure done fairly regularly for the past decade. I've actually had it done starting in my early 30s. And that's because skin cancer is the most common type of cancer in the US, but it is also treatable. And the National Foundation for Cancer Research actually tells us that prevention is the best method. Practicing safe sunning with a broad spectrum sunblock is key and Sunbum provides the best of the best. We even trust the bum with our child because they have a specifically formulated sunscreen for children and they're even throwing in a free sample of it with all online orders. So I use the mineral products because it is the best texture of any sunscreen that I've ever encountered. Super lightweight, zero slick greasiness and it doesn't migrate, it doesn't get in your eyes when you're in the water or grease up your hands. It is an epic product. So go to sunbum.com if you want to get that free sample of the kids' sunscreen with your order, or you can pick up Sunbum at your local surf shop or Target or CVS, almost anywhere that you're shopping. So trust the bum, pick up product, and learn more at sunbum.com. And wavekey.com. Are you following Brad and his family during their residency at Niama in the Maldives? This past week, the swell has filled in and everyone is scoring. He's hosting a wave key teaching retreat, which is obviously too late for any of us to participate in, but there's still plenty to gleam from his Instagram account. On the first day of swell, he takes off on a head high left with a slight airdrop that doesn't interrupt his momentum at all. So he goes straight into a bottom turn and then boom, into a top turn, continues to surf the wave. And when I first started doing Wave Key, I kind of scoffed at lesson one being focused on the pop-up, but now, two years later, I am still relearning it, reexamining it, and recognizing the utter importance of the most minute details of it. And seeing Brad in that Instagram clip, and seeing him in those video tutorials, you could almost transpose the image of him in studio and on the wave, and you can see how the energy of the wave is leveraged into power through those simple body mechanics. It makes perfect sense in theory, but when you see it all on the screen, it is crystal clear how unique and valuable the program is. So go to wavekey.com to learn more. Key is spelled K-I, so wavekey.com. Our promo code will save you 20% whether you sign up for a month or a year. Our promo code is WAVEKEYSPLENDOR20, the number two zero, WAVEKEYSPLENDOR20. Utilize the program at home, do it at your own pace, but I'd recommend doing about 20 minutes a day, three days a week. You'll be able to access better surfing and more ease next time you're in the water. WAVEKEY.com will get you there. Enjoy. So much of surf history, much like human history, has been reliant on the oral tradition, transmitting knowledge, art, preserving important cultural experiences verbally from one generation to another. Rosemary Reimers Rice's name was passed to me through this lore. Somehow, someway, her name and her significance imprinted on my awareness early. But I hadn't heard her name in probably the last two decades. That was until I received an email from a listener in Santa Cruz who lives down the street from her and he suggested that she'd be a great fit for surf splendor. Her experience would add unique perspective to these ongoing conversations. I totally agreed and I was thrilled to actually have somebody who knew her and could facilitate connecting me with her. But. As I went to prep for the conversation, I was confronted by the limitation of the oral tradition. Not a lot had been written about Rosemary. Or if it was, maybe in that first decade of Surfer Magazine, it hadn't been transcribed to the internet. And this is the case for nearly all of the female surfers of Rosemary's generation and onward all the way through my generation. It is hard to find imagery and information about their existence and their importance to surf culture. What i could find about rosemary was that she was the first female team rider for dewey weber and that she was married to surfboard shaper johnny rice for the ceremony by the way she wore a white wetsuit and he wore a black one in the water on surfboards along with their entire wedding party in the lineup at cowls a really amazing celebration from anybody who witnessed it or who was there But that's kind of it that's kind of all i could find about her so i figured that was just as well it's probably better to hear her story straight from her own perspective anyways and that would also give us an opportunity to continue this legacy of surf history through oral tradition so i drove up to meet her in her santa cruz bungalow home built in 1922 right off of steamer lane so Without further ado, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and here is my conversation with Rosemary Reimers Rice. By the way, we enter this conversation discussing a passel of opossums that were living in her yard. Uh, You're right, though. They get a bad rap for being ugly.
1: Right. And they're one of the best things in the yard. Are they? Oh, they eat the snails and... All these really weird stuff, and even snakes, and they're very handy in a yard. I didn't know that. Yeah.
0: Hmm. You need a better PR team, because they have yeah. a bad rap.
1: Well, up here, people, I mean, they live on people's porches or whatever it is. I think I have a couple in the back part, um, and they will always talk about the good things the opossum's doing. Hmm. Good to know. Yeah. So if you see one running around. Yeah. Yay.
0: All right. I'll celebrate it. Yeah. Um, um, Where I know you grew up in Hermosa in 1950, or you started surfing, I guess, in Hermosa in 1954. But how did your family end up in Hermosa? Who are your parents? What did they do?
1: I don't know. You know, I really don't know how they ended up in Hermosa, but they bought the house In 1938, I think. Okay. Um, They lived in Redondo Beach ahead of time, then bought the house in Hermosa. Um, In fact, they bought the house from some people that used to live next door for $2,800. Permanent ocean view, but nobody even knows. But it's all on sand hills. Yeah. You know? And even today it still has a permanent ocean view from the property, but it has been sold, which I was not happy about at all. But I got voted out because the family sold it. Well my sister somebody came in and to talk to my sister says somebody wants to buy the house, which is the same vintage as this. Mm-hmm. For two million dollars. And of course, everybody goes, Oh my God, whole bunch of money. So they tore the house down. Yep. They built another house, and a hockey player bought it five mil cash. And what really kind of upset me, and probably a little bit my brother too, because he's an architect. And if he could have done something with the house and turn around and sell it that much for that much. Yeah. But I don't know. When I first moved up here, which was 1970, I was going to only be here for five years and move back down to Hermosa beach, but it didn't turn out that way.
0: Why, why only five years? Were you going to school? or I don't what?
1: know. I just picked five years. Okay. Said that. Yeah.
0: Um, I don't want to jump that far ahead in the timeline yet. So let's stick with Hermosa right now. Okay. Um, What did your parents do there?
1: Uh, My, well, when I was very young, my dad was uh, working in the shipyard Mm -hmm. and my mom was just a housewife. And I, I even remember, far back that we had to keep the windows closed because the war was going on World War Two. because we had to close the windows. So you didn't show any light. If there was anybody out at sea that could, I guess, pick wow. us off. Wow. Yeah.
0: So only oceanfront homes basically had to be concerned about that.
1: Well, they, we were set back. Okay. And there was no homes, you know, I mean, there were funky little bungalows and stuff on the Strand. It wasn't even Strand. Right. It was just, there's in a, fact, the sand used to come right up to some of the houses right up into their yard before they put the the wall up there.
0: Yeah. But for listeners who don't know that beach, there's a few hundred yards of sand, let's say. Right. Before you get to the ocean. Yeah. So the houses aren't right on the water per se. But um. so how'd you discover surfing?
1: I was 14. Okay. I was in high school and Johnny was also in high school and we ended up being boyfriend and girlfriend and all of that stuff. And he said, he's actually the one that taught me how to s- surf. We would go down to uh, San Onofre wow. and because um, I guess he picked San Onofre because it even though it's kind of a beach break, you know, the way it breaks, it's a little bit softer it is. than maybe going right out in Hermosa where you just get slammed on the sand. Yeah. So uh, that's where he taught me how to surf. And one of the things, and, and some of the people learning to surf nowadays was – don't let your hands off the board until you have your feet under you. Because a lot of people will try and just like they're on the floor and they just try and stand up and they're, you know, and that's why they fall. Yeah. So, um, that's how I got started.
0: Um, what was your awareness of surfing at that time? You know, was it pervasive in culture or was it still really fringe And, um, who was Johnny to you at that point?
1: It, it, it seems like it was just part. I was part of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, I don't know if it's because it's, was down at the beach all the time or what. It just, it wasn't foreign to me at all.
0: Uh, what did your parents think of you getting into it?
1: They, they, they were supportive. Okay, good. Um, and they didn't like to come down and watch or anything because they were afraid I was going to get hurt, mm. you know.
0: How many other women, female surfers, were there?
1: When I was living in Hermosa Beach, Shelly Merrick, she was from Malibu, and um, uh, Mary Lou Drummy was McGinnis at that time. And we went, you know what? When I went to high school, there was like Bing, Rick Stoner, Dewey Weber, Sonny Vardaman, I mean, and Greg Knoll. We were all, at that time, in high school together. So it was kind of like just part of our living and not thinking anything about it. Yeah. And, of course, that's when the Edgar Brothers were building on uh, the balsa wood boards. Mm-hmm. and. Getting into Belzey also.
0: So, yeah. I didn't realize everybody went to the same high school at the same time. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, I think of that area as being kind of an epicenter of uh, surfboard manufacturing. And then, of course, surf culture kind of growing out of that. Uh But I didn't realize that everybody was in the same high school.
1: Miracosta. Crazy. Yeah, it is. Wow.
0: Whose surfboards were you and Johnny writing at that time?
1: Well, Johnny made me a board.
0: So he was making boards at that age?
1: Yeah. he. Uh, it was a balsa wood board okay. with uh, dark blue pigment on it. Okay. And it had my name on the nose. Now, uh, whether he was working at the shop for Velzi, I, I I think that's where he, he shaped it. Okay. Before Velzy moved to Venice. Okay. Yeah.
0: So Velzy was doing full scale surfboard manufacturing already at that time?
1: Pretty much, yeah.
0: Got it. Johnny was in high school, but he was apprenticing under Velzy, or how did that relationship start?
1: Johnny had been using some old surfboards. Now, wait a minute, I'm going ahead of myself. Um, There was a board that Johnny had that needed to be fixed. His mom took him to Velzy to have the board fixed. And I think that's where the two of them clicked right Uh there. So it's kind of a little dark in my memory banks. Sure. Yeah.
0: Um, You mentioned that he had made you a balsa board. Were they not using foam at that point?
1: Right. They were all balsa wood. In fact, I still have my Joe Quig board, balsa wood board in the back.
0: Uh, what's that story? Did you know Quig?
1: I knew, yeah. When when um, Johnny and I went our separate ways, I ended up getting married to Charlie Reimers, which is the father of my kids. So um, when when I got married... Charlie was in the service got stationed in Hawaii and so I met Aggie and Joe in Hawaii okay. at that time that's where I really really got into surfing because Johnny went his way and I went my way there oh, there's so many stories I don't even know how to
0: tick through them I'm one going, by one going go through them as they come to you
1: well, going back to when Johnny, um, and Velzy were really, really close. And then when Velzi had a shop in, um, Venice, there, the canal was in front of his, um, his shop and Velzi would always have Johnny and me take boards to, uh, paddle in the canal and, um. When you walk down to the canal, you step into the sand and you feel these little sand crabs at the bottom of your feet. It was so weird. Yes, I could hardly wait to jump on the board and paddle back and forth and whatever. And then I always had to remember, oh, no, I have to get out and feel those little creatures on the bottom of my feet. You know, of course, Velzi laughed, you know.
0: Why did you why did he want you to paddle them around in the channel?
1: I, I don't know. I don't know if he just wanted Johnny to, you know, kind of keep him busy or whatever uh, yeah. it is. But that's where Johnny learned how to shape is from Velzy. You know, I mean, and Velzy really took him under his arm. Did he? Yeah.
0: What was your impression of Velzy?
1: Oh, he loved him. Um, Johnny and I used to babysit for his kids. Uh, when he was married to Pat and then Johnny just kept working, shaping. Yeah. And then, um, you know, Johnny had a drinking problem mm-hmm. and that's what really broke us up. And uh, that's when I met the kid's father mm-hmm. and went to the islands. And
0: where, where in Hawaii were you?
1: In Oahu. Okay. Lily right there. And, You know, Kalakaua was just a two lane road. Now it's like a freeway. Yeah. So, and we lived really close to Waikiki. So I just walked down and get in the water all the time.
0: Uh, What year would that have been?
1: 1957. Wow. It was before it was a state.
0: Okay. Wow. That's
1: crazy. Yeah. That was when you go to parties, it was the real thing. No hula dancers there. There was Kalua Pig, and the guys were playing great music, playing on the, the, with the ukes and all of that. I mean, I was very fortunate that was the real Hawaii. What a time. I got to see it before, before it became a state, really.
0: When did it become a state? 58?
1: 58.
0: I think it was 58, too. Yeah. Um, And that's where you met Quig. So did you get a board from him while you were there?
1: Uh, No. Um, Charlie knew Joe from the Malibu days because he was born and raised in Santa Monica. And so he went surfing all the time with Ricky Grigg. They did paddling, you know, and all of that. Uh, Charlie also was friends with... uh, um, Hmm?
0: Kivlin, yes, Matt Kivlin, yes. Took me a minute.
1: In fact, I had one of the Matt Kivlin boards. Did you? When when we moved to Hawaii, that's what I surfed on all the time.
0: So you had all of the pioneers, essentially. Yeah. Um, do you you mentioned that you still have the Quig? Oh, I do. Do you still have the first Balsa board that Johnny made you? I don't. Okay. What happened to that?
1: That I have no idea.
0: Okay. Do you have photos of I it? thought
1: I had a picture of it, but I can't find it. Okay. I keep coming up with these pictures that, you know, I'm going, oh my God, I, I can't believe it. I have a picture of Johnny and me hanging out at the beach in a, a Malibu. Johnny first goes, that's not me. I said, yes it is. And then I showed him another picture, and he was with Steve Smith at the time. And he goes, "Yeah, I guess that is me."
0: That's fine,
1: you know, because he was Native American. Yeah, and always dark.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that. Can you tell me about his Native American background?
1: Well, when uh, when I first met Johnny in Hermosa Beach or Manhattan, uh, his his mom and dad split up and his mother told johnny don't you ever tell anybody your father was a native american and he was brought up to think that way and kept you know believing it or whatever it was it was it was a time that i guess nobody wanted to be any other blood than white you know so when Johnny and I got decided to get married. Johnny was telling me about all this coming up about his native background. And he goes, I think I'm Shami. And so I said, Oh, okay. So this is before, you know, internet and stuff. So he found his great grandmother's death certificate. Her name was Columbia, and she was Iowa Sioux. But uh, Johnny's father was in the Prairie Band Pottawatomie tribe. So after two years of writing back and forth, finding out where Johnny was coming from, His father was in Prairie Band Potawatomi, so that was the tribe that Johnny had enrolled in after, like I said, it took us two years easily. I still have a lot of the letters back and forth, back and forth. He moved here to Santa Cruz when I think he was eight. And that's when he met Mike Winterburn and the two of them used to break into the old surfing shack that the Santa Cruz surf club had and they would take out the old Simmons boards oh my and gosh. surfing. Yeah.
0: Wow. Um, do you know how his mom and dad met? Like if there was active kind of racism against native Americans, that seems, um, they were going against the grain in that relationship.
1: Right. I, I, th- believe he was in the service, and he was uh, EMT, I think. Okay. And whether he's, whether Laura knew anything about it, I don't know. Okay.
0: What do you think stimulated Johnny's desire to get to know that part of his background?
1: I think, um, well, first of all, he wanted me to know. You know, and this was in 83. And... He just felt like he needed to kind of bring this out. So that's, and I'm going, oh, wow, that's so cool. You know, and and he was kind of surprised that I was excited about it. And then that's when we decided to start tracing. We followed through with the great grandmother's death certificate and found out, she was Iwasu, you know, going on to it like that. But like I said, he had a drinking problem. Mm -hmm. And getting into his native roots didn't touch alcohol for 25 years.
0: Learning about his background, background inspired sobriety.
1: Right. Because the native people also have a certain enzyme. Yeah that they can get drunk and mean or whatever it is. that That's the reason why you always saw the, the drunken Indian laying on the ground or beating somebody up or whatever it was. Yeah. And he didn't want to be part of that. Interesting. And he did the umblecha, which is when they hang from the tree right here, the sun dance.
0: I've seen that. So they... A pierce the skin, right? Yeah, right. Okay.
1: And uh, I still have one of his piercing things. Yeah, he did.
0: So what is that? What are they doing?
1: It's, they dance until I think one of them breaks, breaks the skin. And then they go up on uh, Bear Butte in North Carolina, South Dakota. D- Dakota. And they fast for four days. They just sit up there for four days, no food, no water, no nothing. And all the stories he would say, telling me about the little creatures that would come up. And, you know, I imagine a lot of his, you're starting to hallucinate after a while. Yeah. And it was hard on him because he was having heart problems at the time and he really needed his water and stuff, but he didn't do it. Wow. So after the four days, they came down to the sweat lodge and got their selves back together.
0: So they do it as a group? Yeah. Okay. So um, in the timeline of the story, he's tracing his family origin story.
1: On his father's side.
0: And he gets, so he starts, it's basically a spiritual quest then, right? To go through that process, like a rite of passage.
1: Right. So exactly,
0: they uh, pierce them in two spots on the chest,
1: right on the pectoral.
0: and muscles. lift them, hang them from a tree. Yeah, and they do the dance motion while they're hanging uh-huh. until the skin breaks and they fall.
1: Well, one, well, I guess, till it breaks. Yeah,
0: and then go into the fast in the wilderness. Wow, what did he get from it?
1: He got sober. He just turned into an, a complete different person. And there were a lot of people that would come and talk to him, you know, to get some feedback from positive stuff that a lot of kids came up to him with that would have problems and whatever it is, then he would talk to them and all that. And and then there was a time that He decided he wanted to work with uh, people that have, you know, that are alcoholics and whatever it is. And then he probably would have stayed in it longer, except for the fact that he met this one guy, Ted, who was a Native American, cleaned up, did all that, and fell off. Oh, yeah. And Johnny goes, I can't handle that. And this whole time he's still shaping.
0: Right. So, Yeah, I feel like um, relapse is just part of sobriety for a vast majority. You know? If you
1: know how to get out of it.
0: Um, when you say that kids were coming up to him and asking for guidance, was it, did they know anything about his background or he just, people were drawn to him in that way?
1: They, well, the word had gotten out you know, that he wasn't Greek. The only reason why he had the Greek name, because that was his stepfather's name, Antoniatus. And that's one reason why Belzi always called him Greek. But, uh, no, people got out, and, you know. And, of course, people have become a lot more aware of the Native American people and their way of thinking and growing food and taking care of the yards and all that stuff.
0: But we don't think we don't associate a lot of Native Americans with surfing. Right. He's one of the only Native American professional his, surfer his, shapers uh, that I could think of.
1: His uh uh Native American name is Miniacon Mani. It means walking on water. That was the closest they could get to um Surfing. Yeah. In fact, on his plaque out there, it gives us his, his uh, mini con money, his, his Indian name.
0: <laughs> That's amazing.
1: Yeah, it is.
0: Realwatersports.com. You've heard Britt Merrick here on the podcast. He is a fan favorite. We also had Parker Coffin on a few months ago to talk about his new board model, the CI Pro, that he had been developing with Britt. Well, guess what? Joao Alcianca, everybody's new favorite surfer, just won Portugal on that exact board model. It's also the board that Jack Robinson selected as his stab in the dark winner last year and Real Water Sports just took delivery of a fresh batch. So if you've been eyeing that board, Real probably has your size right now, and they can ship it to you wherever you are in the world for one flat low fee. In my quiver, I have a Two Happy from Channel Islands and a Rocket Wide. Both boards serve a different purpose, I love them both. Real has some of those too. They've also got the Bobby Quad, they've got the CI Mid that you have seen Devin Howard riding to its fullest potential. All of them in nearly every size. So if you've been looking to get a Channel Island surfboard, go to realwatersports.com. This is why we love them. It's a one-stop shop for video tutorials, for inventory, for anything you need for water sports, realwatersports.com. Enjoy. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You were the first female surfer for the Dewey, Dewey Weber team. Yes. Isn't that right? Can 1962. You, can you tell me about that? How did you connect with Dewey Weber and how did that relationship develop?
1: Well, because um, first I was surfing for Bing. He's, he's got that in the book. And um, I was down at Tamarack, and he had Dewey had Scouts out at the time, and Dewey only lived right down the street from me in Hermosa. Okay. So he and Carol, she goes by Carolyn now, but Carol uh, came over to the house and asked me if I want to be part of their team. So, sure, you know I I got free boards, you know all the whole kitten caboodle Bing wasn't too happy with me about that time no but but going even before Bing I have Hap Hap Jacob's board I still have wow so
0: so what did being a team rider mean what did they expect of you and what did you expect of them well
1: it was well of course we advertised for him because we had the jackets and the bathing suits and all of that. And of course, writing the boards and then getting written up in ads and all of that. So that helped. So
0: that was the main exchange. You were the walking billboard.
1: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. The thing is, and they want you to, to um, be in lot of contests Mm -hmm. but i had two kids then oh you did yeah i mean i was 19 when i had charles okay 21 when i had nadine and that's the reason why you hear about all the other gals you hear a lot more about them because they've been in all these contests and they'd win them but i was busy raising two young kids Driving up on the coast with my kids and a babysitter. Yeah.
0: Um, which is probably a better use of your time anyway, because was there really a professional career path for a female surfer at that point?
1: No, there wasn't. Right. Yeah.
0: So even if you win the contest, it's not a career move really, no. right? No. Uh-uh. No. When I was trying to research this conversation, I had a very hard time finding information about you. How does, does that bother you at all? That you played such an influential role in the culture at a time, but it's not really documented?
1: Uh, No, I really haven't thought about it. I think, well, there was a book that I found down at the bookshop, Santa Cruz, and there was a little blooper that I was in there, and and it made me feel really good. Did it? Because it was... It was just making a statement of, about the girls here in Santa Cruz, one other gal, Erlene, and then myself. And it talks about the little story where I was sur- surfing out at the hook. And, um, and, of course, Johnny was out there, too, because he and I would surfing all the time together. And then um, these kids kept burning me out there. And I go. I was telling Johnny. I go. These kids are just keep burning me, and he, he looks at me. And he goes, "Well, run him over," and that's exactly what I did. And they stayed away from. Me. So that was a story that ended up in this book. And I I remember telling one person when they were doing a an article on the paper. I was telling him that story. So it made me feel good that at least. I got a little bit yeah. in this book.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you get a lot of magazine coverage? Um, no. Okay.
1: Just uh, the ads for Dewey. Right. But like I said, I was raising a couple of kids. Yeah. So, and I did work and raised and you know, live my life until Johnny came along.
0: Well, before we get there, you said you moved up here to Santa Cruz in 1970. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the re? why Santa Cruz? What was the reason for the move?
1: Should I really tell you? Heck yeah. Get away from drugs. I mean, in Hermosa, all you had to do was go down to the corner. Hey, do you have this? Do you have that? Or whatever it is. So, had to get away from it.
0: And you had kids, obviously.
1: Yeah. And and I did met, met this one guy that was going to school up here. So we kind of connected for a while. And then...
0: So you had kind of a reason to head this way? Yeah. Or somebody that you
1: knew? And I'm going, you know, he just wanted to be a professional student. And I said, bye. You know.
0: So were you able to get away from drugs? Yeah. Okay. Because Santa Cruz is known for drugs too.
1: Right. But later on. Okay. That came later. Yeah. I mean, like the psychedelic and all that kind of stuff. That's, that's going up and down the coast no matter what, but yeah. But later on, I mean, I mean, it's gotten really bad. Oh, I know. You just, you know, and you, you have all these people that, that want to help you. You can't help anybody unless they want to do it themselves, you know, forget it.
0: So 1970 Santa Cruz paint the picture.
1: Yeah. You know, it just, it wasn't crowded. It was just going out, socializing, catching a few waves. And then when I got reacquainted to Johnny, that's when really got me started.
0: Um you said you were working full time what were you doing
1: interior design oh okay can you tell
0: it's beautiful i love it i mean lots of original artwork that's uh
1: yeah my grandson did that
0: oh really mm-hmm. the one who just walked by
1: yeah okay he's building he took over johnny's uh, shaping bay
0: as an art studio
1: no as shaping boards oh really yeah there he goes
0: very cool uh, we'll get to that then. Um, how did you reconnect with Johnny?
1: It was, uh, a, a longboard contest. The, the Santa Cruz longboard union okay. put on a contest and I always worked the background. So, cause I didn't like doing contests at all. Later on I did, but and so at the uh, dinner, I saw Johnny there with his wife. Her name was Rosemary too.
0: Was it really? <laughs> I didn't know that. With a Y or an I?
1: Probably with Y. Yeah. And she was Mexican. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and Johnny was very heavy. I mean, it's like she was feeding him tacos and tamales like crazy.
0: Well, he was probably still drinking at that point too, right? Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. And so after I came home and he went back down, he was living in Ventura at the time, um, they got a divorce. I guess he just kind of blew out and left and moved back up here. He moved over uh, a couple blocks.
0: When you saw him, though, at the Longboard event, did you talk to him?
1: Yeah. Oh, okay. I did.
0: So you got reacquainted.
1: Yeah. It it was kind of, uh, I was dealing with a friend of mine who had passed, and Johnny knew the guy and didn't want anything to do with Mike, but so he wouldn't come over and I was having a memorial for him. Yeah. Is what it was. and. So, like I said, Johnny went back down south. And then after that, he he phoned me and said he'd like to come up, so that he did.
0: Meaning, yeah. I want to come up and reunite with my high school sweetheart?
1: You know what? It, looking back on it, I think so. Yeah. You know? But he was, he, uh, like I said, when he, he just got fed up with, with ventura that he wanted to come back home here so um he ended up renting a little house over a block or so away and then things just developed from there he would shaping boards over there when he was in in ventura he was also a merchant marine well merchant yeah, merchant marine. Okay. He was a captain of a huge boat. So he decided he didn't want to do that anymore. And that's when he decided to move up here.
0: So he um that was kind of his career path, but he was always shaping boards on oh, the weekends and on
1: the Sunday kind of. Yeah. Even gotcha. when he was in the Coast Guard. Really? He was shaping.
0: And around the world too, right?
1: Well, he he in well, he uh moved to Brazil. That was in Early I 70s. think that was 1970. He okay. Down there.
0: And set up a surf shop down there. And yeah. Had a life. He did.
1: Yeah. And it seems like, I know before Johnny passed, when they were having the surf contest, a lot of the kids, he remembers their last name. Yep. And I remember, he remembered their parents or whatever it is from Brazil. Yeah. When we decide to live together, he built a shop that's out there. That's all we lived on was all the boards he was making it was It was great, I mean, you know, I had little jobs like working for the city, working out in the fields and stuff like that, but you know had to do something, sure, anyway, yeah, but yeah we he really he really is the only person that really took care of me financially.
0: You mentioned when you came to Santa Cruz was the first time you kind of realized that you were one of the only women in the water. Yeah. Did you, was there any opposition to you being a female in the water?
1: No, actually, well, there was one time, but, um, there, um, no, I I was actually it was pretty cool.
0: You were embraced. I didn't really have
1: any problem. The only problem I had was one time at when I was at Thirty uh, Eighth Avenue at Pleasure Point side. This guy kept burning me all the time, and I was really getting very angry about it. So finally. Um, the one of the last ways, I just turned, burned the heck out of him, and came into the, he came in to the shore. I went,
0: <laughs> flipped him off,
1: and the guy came out of the water and was asking Pat Farley. He says, "Who is that woman?" He goes, "That's Johnny Rice's wife." So they left me. He left me alone ever since, because want- Johnny had, he had. um you know, a reputation for being kind of a tough guy too. Okay. And he taught karate and all that stuff when he was in Florida.
0: I see. So I'm surprised. I mean, it's such a small town. I'm surprised that that guy didn't already know who you were. And there's so few women in the lineup. I think that he would know.
1: Right. In fact, I was the only woman out at that day. Yeah. Yeah. Times have changed.
0: Yeah, they have actually. I know. Um, how closely do you follow professional surfing nowadays?
1: Um, uh, Nat Young lives right over here. Oh, does he? So we kind of follow him, mm-hmm. and uh, so that—that's really the only person we really get involved in. Okay. But Charles follows it, follows it a lot more than I do because he knows most of the people.
0: Got it. You know. Um, have you? Tracked female professional surfing over the years? I haven't. Okay.
1: I really haven't. But again, see that has a lot to do with, because whatever they were doing, um, I just raising kids. Yeah. I wasn't involved in, in, all of that. Right. And, and as you get older, they're getting younger. Right. And I'm going, who in the heck is that?
0: Who's that child? Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So um uh I read that you stopped surfing at age 70. Yeah. Is that true? How often were you surfing up until that point and why did you stop?
1: Um, I was surfing a lot. In fact, later on I'll show you the board that when Johnny made me, he goes, I made you this board. And I want you to surf it. I don't want you to put it up on the shelf. You're going to use it. And I did. But what happened was I was surfing outside cows, took off on a wave. This young lady takes off in front of me, and she's just beginning. And you can always tell they take off, go to the bottom of the wave, and then stand up. Yep. I'm coming down like this. So it turns out I have to jump over her and she comes popping up Oh no, She comes popping up and I go, when you take off like that, because knowing that she's just a beginner, you look to your left to make sure nobody's coming down. Well, I've been surfing for a whole year Gosh. and I go, Either I get out right now or I'm ready to punch somebody. I mean I just I just had it. Yeah. And it just kept getting more crowded and more crowded. I mean, I'll be eighty-four in a couple weeks.
0: Oh, okay. So that was fourteen years ago then? So
1: So that's being out of the water. You know it's worse? No. Getting in and out of the wetsuit. Oh yeah. I remember one time getting out of the water. I mean, it was they were getting harder and harder. Thank God I never had to buy a wetsuit. I was always given one, but I, I remember having getting out of the water, going up the Cal stairs, and having to somebody to help me get out of the damn wetsuit.
0: A stranger, you
1: know, and because if you can't get your elbows out, yeah, you know, it's really hard.
0: And when you started surfing, there were no wetsuits, yeah. right? So
1: I've got pictures of myself. Just in bathing suits,
0: even up in Santa Cruz.
1: No, by the time okay, by the
0: time you got here, they had wetsuits. Okay. Um. Well, so that incident is the reason that you stopped surfing at seventy. Uh, I want to ask you more about that because it seems like a shame to let a negative experience be the thing that puts you out of the water. Well,
1: I, I really probably shouldn't leave it like that. But I was getting to the age. It just was getting a little bit harder. Okay. You know, and, and getting in and out of the water, going up and down the stairs and all of that, you know, and you get, you get kind of tired as you get older. Yeah. Those damn wetsuits.
0: <laughs> uh What do you, do you miss it?
1: Do I miss it? I do. Um, I I have a pleasure of knowing, watching, knowing exactly what's going on when you, when there's so many people just watch it and they don't understand the floaters, they don't understand the, all the maneuvers that are taken. Of course, that's another thing too. Those young kids coming up with all their, their, whatever they're doing. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. They have, it's like Velcro on their feet. Yeah. You know.
0: Yeah. um have you found anything that services the same thing for you or that is replaced surfing in a way
1: um I there were not really now that I think about it I because I just walk down and I can hang out at the the cliffs down there and and watch everything that's going on and, and mind surfing, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Yeah.
0: If you found yourself in Hawaii where the water was warm and you didn't have to put a wetsuit on, would you go back in?
1: Oh, probably. I I know I, uh, I remember going to Mexico and walking into, I mean, it was hot. Walking into the water in the same temperature. Yeah. It was amazing. But that's a little different.
0: It is. um, But I think that, you know, putting a wetsuit on, getting to your feet, all of those things are harder to do. They require a lot of athletics, but there's a version of surfing that you could still probably access whether it's body surfing or body boarding or something like or
1: that. Or even paddling, yeah. Yeah, paddling. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely do the paddling. Yeah. For sure. I try, I tried the stand-up paddle, and it, it's because I was so used to surfing, you, you know, you have one foot forward. Right. Well, stand-up paddle, you have both of them on... And I kept flipping all the time. Yeah. And my son and my granddaughter were laughing at me and Charles would go, don't do that. You just put your feet together.
0: Yeah. Or, and then if you're going to try to catch a wave, you go from that parallel stance to then shifting into the surfing stance, which is challenging too. um, I'm curious. We're talking about surf history. Who are some other female unsung hero, like unsung influential female surfers that listeners should be aware of that maybe didn't get credit through the years?
1: This is going to sound weird, but I never really had many women surfer friends. I did have one for a while, Sheila Ralston, where I would meet her at 38th Avenue or 36th Avenue, and we would go surfing together. But that that was a while back um but overall all my friends have been males oh really and when you think about it when i first started surfing and there's no female out there all your friends are guys yeah you know and it's that's just the way it was and it kind of in a way is still the same yeah So
0: there's certainly more females in the lineup, but it's still predominantly male. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, Did you ever have an, take an interest in board building?
1: Board building?
0: Yeah. Like shaping surfboards.
1: No, I'll photograph. Okay. I went into photography. Oh, okay. I had stuff um, in magazines and all of that.
0: What type of photography were you doing?
1: Uh, It was... A lot of them was taking a surfer, doing a portrait of him. And a lot of people read articles about, let's say, this certain person, but didn't know what they looked like. So that's how I got started. And uh, even in a magazine in Australia, that happened.
0: Portrait photography.
1: A portrait, yeah.
0: For surfing specifically or just portrait photography in general?
1: Oh, I did all kinds of photography. Okay. I mean, I even went to the flea market and photographed dolls. My my son doesn't even like to look at them because they're gross. But, you know.
0: What's gross about a doll?
1: It's just the way they were displayed, I think. Okay. Yeah.
0: I'm curious what's happening with Johnny Rice surfboards now. You mentioned your grandson is shaping? Yeah. So, he's continuing the brand legacy?
1: Well, he's he is using the same outline of his logo, but he wants to call it a um, saber um let's see. Yeah, Saber Jet. Okay. Which is a break right out over here at It's Beach. Okay. Yeah, he's only 24.
0: Um, why not maintain the Johnny Rice label? I would think there'd be demand for the boards.
1: Um, Because he is building boards that look like they belong out of space, outer space.
0: Oh, okay. It's a totally different brand identity.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Because Johnny was, you know, well, he did that one up there for Charles when he went to Indonesia. And, uh, but, but Jonah is, you know, like the nose would have a – it's really hard to explain how it is, but it's – they're like outer space. Got it. So, he, and and his initials are the same as JR. Oh, okay. So, because he's a Rhymers. Yeah. Yeah. I know he is loving the fact that his granddad had that chop out there, and he feels – He's part of it, you know. It's just what's really strange. He's no real blood line of Johnny's, but he has all. He has all the makings that he makes his own fins. He, He even carves out his own blanks. Really, you know, he all old school, nothing computerized. Interesting. Yeah. Very cool. I know it is. So.
0: I'll look up his, uh, his brand.
1: He's, I don't know if he's on it. He's been, um, he's so shy.
0: Yeah. But kids these days have social media. There's gotta be something on the internet about it. Right. I'll look it up. Um, I know that you are, uh, Going to the dermatologist tomorrow. Do you want to offer a PSA for our listeners about skincare for those who spend a lot of time in the sun?
1: Well, you got to, you got to remember, when we were kids, we could hardly wait to get that baby oil on our bodies and go out and just end up crispy critters. And there'd be, we would get our legs so sunburned on the back that you could hardly even you know, move. I mean, I remember having to sleep on my stomach because my legs were so sunburned. But um, that, that's the only thing. There's a lot of people now that put on sunscreen or wear big hats. And Jonah's really conscious of it. And so is my son. Yeah. Of course, they wear hoods. But they still put stuff all over their face. I I did put stuff on my face, but not on the top of my head. Mm-hmm. And boy, did that get sunburned too. Yeah.
0: So, what are the consequences of your actions?
1: Having them dig out stuff, you know. Yeah. And and right here on my eye, they're gonna do that right next to my eye. So I. I don't know. So you just have I've to. I've had a lot of. You know, I I should have been living in a cave.
0: Yeah. So you go twice a year, though, to get it all taken care of? Yeah. Good. I think that's the recommendation for listeners, though, is preventative maintenance. Right. Don't ignore it. Go twice a year. Get it all checked out because they can't take care of it.
1: It's like my son tried to make an appointment where I go because all of his doctors and everything were down south. He couldn't get it because they're not taking new patients. Oh, really? It's so weird. Yeah.
0: Well, I guess it's a need that everybody has now. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to ask you kind of in closing about, um, sobriety and for people, listeners who may be struggling with it or dealing with it or considering sobriety, uh, what are methods that you have seen that have been beneficial for maintaining sobriety?
1: It's believing in yourself. Because nobody's going to do it for you. It has to be like mind over matter. You know? And it's easy to say no. Is it? hmm Once you pa- pass
0: once the you're mountain. Mot- once you're motivated to do it?
1: Yeah. Oh, Yeah. So, and fortunately, like Jonah, who's only 24, ha- has no desire yeah. to get into all that, which I, I love that. Yeah. You know, so. Good. I mean, these kids were brought up, and we were just smoking weed, doing the whole thing, and thank they, they God, they didn't.
0: Sometimes that could be a good deterrent as well. Yeah. Just witnessing it.
1: That's true.
0: Yeah. Um. What was the last surfboard that you rode?
1: The last surfboard I rode was one that Johnny gave me or made for me. He made me a 10-foot board. It made it so easy to get up. Well, I was in my 60s, you know, and... Uh, so And it was a good floater. I still have it. And um, so that that was always that board that was my last board. What are you going to do with
0: all these boards? Got a
1: museum. Boards hanging in the other room in here.
0: I mean, but those are important boards for surf kind of culture and history.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. But Jonah, he, a friend of his asked him to, if he would store a few boards for him, 26. Oh my gosh. You know, and they had to build special racks for, for him along the fence. Oh my He just didn't know how to say no.
0: Well, why would somebody ask to store 26 boards? Are they leaving the country?
1: The guy, the guy that he did it, he's um, he does documentaries. Oh, that's another thing he does. He's an editor.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. So he... he was doing editing for Matt Wesson. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, and he does, he's edited for um, Patrick Trev's also.
0: Very cool. Very
1: so, cool. I mean, we call him Tumbleweed because he doesn't stick with one thing.
0: <laughs> That's good, though. He's young. That's what you're supposed to I do. Know.
1: And he's really good in the water surfing. And then he, he, he uh, Steiny got him on a surf mat. And he just thought that is really fun.
0: That's a good way to have fun no matter what the waves are doing.
1: Oh, I know it is. I remember surf matting a lot. Really? Yeah.
0: Very good. Well, Rosemary, is there anything else that we need to cover that we didn't? Okay. Well, thank you for doing this. You're welcome. Appreciate it.
1: I was all nervous and it wasn't as bad as I thought. Oh no, what were you nervous about? I'm Says that now your mind desires a-
0: A couple of things in closing. Hawaii became a state on August 21st, 1959, not 1958, as Rosemary and I guessed. And another important detail about Santa Cruz to convey is that the very first incident of surfing in California took place in Santa Cruz, at the mouth of the San Lorenzo River. The year was 1885, and three Hawaiian princes, nephews of King Kalakai'ua, were going to school at the military academy, St. Matthew's Hall. The three teens shaped 15-foot surfboards out of local redwood trees, and on a busy summer day in mid-July, at a wave that rarely breaks, they paddled out and stunned beachgoers. Obviously, Duke Kaonamoku and George Freeth would help spread the sport's popularity through the 1900s, but this moment in July of 1885 is marked as the inception of surfing in California. Rosemary Reimers Rice is accessible through JohnnyRice.com. I've also included photos of her surfing, photos of her cherished Quig surfboard, and everything else on SurfSplendorPodcast.com. You can also link to our sponsors, Sunbum, Wave Key, Real Water Sports, and find all of the other shows that we produce and distribute through our network on surfsplendorpodcast.com. There are well over a thousand episodes of our various shows that you can binge if you're interested. You can also consider supporting our work for $5 a month. There is a support tab that's easy to find. It's easy to set up. You can cancel it anytime. But it helps us not only archive this work from month to month, but cover costs for road trips uh, to record episodes like this one. So thanks to everybody who does that. And thank you also for your future consideration. That is all I have for you this week. Until next week, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. I'm reminding you, encouraging you to always get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred on.